I'm Pam Rogers, an attorney and a staunch Republican. I'm Mara Dolan, an attorney and a lifelong Democrat. And this is Going to Spirit, Politics and Crime with Pam and Mara. We may disagree on many subjects and topics discussed on this show, but our mutual respect for each other, our common experiences and the work that we do keeps us together. You may think you know the whole story, but you need to hear our rapid fire opinions from both sides. We aren't afraid to go there. We're going to spare it. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Going Disparate podcast with Pam and Mara. I am your host, Pam Rogers. And I am your host, Mara Dolan. She's a Republican. I am a Democrat. And we practice nonviolent political communication. Isn't that right, Pam? I like, that's a really interesting way of putting it, Mara, like nonviolent. That is correct. We don't, you know, we don't right. uh, punch each other. I don't try to run you over with my car. So you're uh, nonviolent. No, we don't insult each other. We don't make fun of each other. We don't, we, re- we respect each other and we like each other. And that's what this podcast is all about. And if you're listening, you've already found us, but you should know you can find us anywhere podcasts are posted. We're on Spotify, iTunes, Apple Podcast, iHeartRadio, and YouTube. Please hit subscribe and give us a five-star review so that even more people can find us. And don't forget, we want to hear from you. You can email us at pamandmara at gmail.com and find us on social media, on Instagram, on Facebook, and on Twitter, just at Go and Disparate. That is quite a lot to say, Mara. That's a lot. (laughs) I don't know how you remember it all. (laughs) It's a labor of love. Boy, am I excited about today's guest. I know. Isn't this really exciting? This is amazing. And folks, usually in this part of the podcast, we do hot takes on crime. Uh, but we're not going to do that. Today. Except I will let you know, I am still reading about Lizzie Borden. And it's, it is amazing. And Pam, did you know that when Lizzie Borden was tried in Massachusetts with a capital case, which this was because she was charged with two counts of murder in the first degree, they would have three judges preside over the trial. I didn't know that. Isn't that amazing? Was it? Pardon me? What year was it? What year? Oh, you you would ask. Um, it was the it was the 19th century, so it was the it was the 1800s. I'm glad we're still talking about it, though. So 130, 140 years later. <laughs> you know, the more I read about the trial, the, and because the question has always been, given the overwhelming circumstantial evidence, why was she found not guilty? It really kind of seems to me that people just did not want to believe that a nice young lady from a good family was capable of that. But now it's time to introduce our wonderful guest today. You ready, Pam? Can I just tell you before he gets on here? Yeah. So we are going to be having Corey Lewandowski on today. And Corey is a good friend of mine. He and I became friends um, when I was a state rep. And he came in to run United States Senator Bob Smith 2002 re-election campaign. And I was working on that campaign. And uh, we became friends. We've been friends ever since. And he is a really, really fantastic guy. Really interesting guy. Obviously worked for President Donald Trump. So we have a lot to talk to him about. We do. Hey, Corey. Hey, how are you? Can you hear us okay? 
bet. Hey, it's uh, great to see you. I want to introduce you to our audience. Today we have Corey Lewandowski with us. He's a three times New York Times bestselling author, longtime political strategist and advisor, campaign manager to Donald Trump's successful 2016 bid for president. And most importantly, he is a husband and father to his beautiful wife and four children. Welcome, Corey. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And thank you so much for Corey, Corey, for coming on. You know, you know, Pam's a Republican. You know, I'm a Democrat and we go disparate at the end of the show. But we're here just to find out what you have to say. And I am really looking forward to it. Great. Let's get it on. So we know that you always have a lot to say, Corey. (laughs) A lot to say. And actually, let me just ask you this question, because when I was I was going through your biography and I know you wrote three books. Were all three of them bestsellers on the New York Times list? So the first two were uh, New York Times bestsellers. The first one was on the list for about 13 weeks. That was called Let Trump Be Trump. Uh, the second book called Trump's Enemies, which if you have followed the news in the last week, the Durham report cites almost all of the, the statistics that were in our book, specifically the secret meeting between Bill Clinton and Loretta Lynch, which took place on the tarmac in Phoenix on page 67. We referenced, we referenced the meeting at... Uh, inside the Oval Office with, uh, at the time, Vice President Joe Biden, President Obama, uh, the CIA director, the FBI director, the DIA director, the NSA director, where they hatched the plan to spy on Donald Trump and the campaign. So th- both of those books made the New York Times bestseller list. And then um, the third book uh, about Donald Trump was on uh, the Wall Street Journal bestseller list, but not the New York Times bestseller list. Okay. Well, that's still pretty damn impressive. Honestly, that was great. And thank you for reminding me about the uh, Loretta Lynch, uh, Bill Clinton, Carmack meeting. I actually forgot all about that. I, of course, for the record, am not going to agree with everything you say. And I'm just noting that for the record. But it's fine. I'm here to see, hear what you think. Well, no, it's not about agreeing or disagreeing, to be honest with you. What it's about is actually bypassing the media, which has become so biased. And, and you know, what they've done is they've lost their credibility, by and large. When the media doesn't cover a national press story last week where the chairman of the House Oversight Committee provides information that was obtained by the banks under a warrant and not one uh, minute of NBC, ABC, CBS, CNN, or MSNBC covered the fact that there were suspicious activity reports to the current president's son and that they have found tens of millions of dollars which were paid by foreign governments. That's not Corey Lewandowski doing that. That's the bank reporting the information. The fact that the mainstream media refuses to cover that is a disservice to the American people. And that's why outlets like this have become so important, because you can bypass the unbelievable bias, which has become the media, and go directly to people, and they can choose to listen to what they want now. Well, I will certainly agree that there are issues with media, even even well-respected, long-time uh, publications that I've you know relied on all my life. I, I don't find them as reliable as I used to, um, but I totally agree with you. And that's why Pam and I are doing this podcast because what we want to talk about is what people actually think and how they see things, and just let them say for themselves. I, I think it's so important. Look, you know, as you travel around, there used to be a time, and honestly, for us people who are old, it wasn't that long ago where 
four, five, and seven at five o'clock with the news outlets and the, the, the titans of the news industry just reported the news, factually based news. They didn't put in their own perspective. And what did we see last week? Donald Trump came to my home state of New Hampshire and he conducted a town hall interview with CNN, uh, a major media outlet. Donald Trump, by every account, not only is he a former president of the United States, he's the leading candidate by every public poll to be the next Republican nominee and is a credible yeah. candidate. Now, the fact that there was such outrage by members of CNN that they gave a, quote, platform to a person like this tells me all the bias that we see. So Anderson Cooper comes out, who is a well-known, well-established reporter, 60 Minutes reporter, and says, if you never want to watch CNN again, we understand. Uh, Oliver Darcy comes out and writes a piece that says, it's, it's distasteful and shameful that our network provided a person like this the opportunity to put their message out. Look, I don't agree with Joe Biden on probably 90% of his policy issues, but he is the leading candidate to be the Democrat presidential nominee uh, for the 2024 election cycle, and he should have a platform to relay those messages. And the same is true with Donald Trump. And when the media comes out and says he's not entitled to that, that is where I have a real problem with members of the media. Because if you're a journalist, you're Jake Tapper or you're Anderson Cooper, your job is not to put a certain spin on a story or dissuade viewers or listeners from getting the news. Your job is simply to report the news. And if you want to be a commentator, there is a place and a role for that as well. But don't pass yourself off as a journalist when you're trying to actually be a political commentator, because they're two very different things, in my opinion. Which is true. Totally true, Corey. And I agree with you. And like, I don't watch uh, mainstream media. I do watch a little bit of Fox News. I don't watch a lot of Fox News. I don't watch a lot of news anymore because I actually get sick of if you watch a lot of Fox News, it's the same stuff over and over and over again. And I'm like, yeah, I actually agree with you, right? I don't need to watch you 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I already agree with you. You already have me. So I do like outlets like this because we do have the opportunity to just be like, hey, this is what I think. Hey, this is what I think. You know, this are our viewpoints. This is why we disagree. This is why we agree. You know, it's just, and it's fine, right? It's all well, point. Well, well, that's right. And look at Fox News and and. You know, most viewers try to go and look at an outlet that they believe represents their respective values, whether you're watching MSNBC because you think that they're right or you're watching Fox News because you think that they're right. CNN used to be considered a very middle of the road, newsworthy organization that people were turned to predominantly for international news coverage. That's really where they excelled for a long time and, and just reported on those facts. But over the course of the last probably five years, we've seen a massive decline in their news reporting and going back to what has become uh, no longer journalistic integrity, but it's, it's, it's inserting your own political and personal beliefs into the stories. And, and I think what you see with that is uh, people just get turned off. I think people get turned off because they want to find outlets that just report the news without the bias and without the propaganda. And, and again, I go back to, it wasn't that long ago when you could turn on the news and watch Walter Cronkite, who we found out was a liberal, a, a you know, but nobody knew it when he reported the news. And that was perfectly fine, right? Dan Rather had his own personal beliefs and opinions, but didn't express those 
to the viewership. They just reported what was transpiring during Vietnam. Another so many people dead today. That's not a Republican or a Democrat ideal. It's not uh, anti-American or pro-American. It was a factual statement that they made. And then the viewers got to draw their own conclusions if they wanted to change the news cycle by doing something about it. And that's what led to a number of the protests during the Vietnam War because of the elements. I just want to ask you a question about sort of the town hall format. I noticed that there were no audience questions. And I just think it's really good for candidates to talk to people and see what people want to know. So I'm wondering if you think that in future there might be opportunities for audience questions. Absolutely. And, and what's important to know is that CNN chose this audience. This was not an audience chosen by the Trump campaign. So CNN is the one who chose the members to come and participate. Uh, they selected them based on their own criteria. Donald Trump has always done exceedingly well when it comes to audience participation, audience questions. I look back at the Hillary Clinton debate at Hofstra University where audience questions were given. I look at a number of the uh, what we call in the rounds where Donald Trump would be placed in the middle of a group of people and then take questions from the circular firing squad. Uh, it was very, very uh, conducive to him, particularly in Iowa in those small settings. In, in Cincinnati, Ohio, we did it a number of times. So I think those are great. And I also think it, it provides some relief to the moderator who very candidly um, has a difficult time, regardless of your level of expertise and experience of keeping up with Donald Trump. Yeah, there were, and I watched that the CNN town hall and there were audience questions, Mars. I'm not sure. There weren't a lot. Yeah, oh, there, okay. there were a couple. They asked some questions um, and they were very straightforward, you know, uh, but, but really it was focused on the moderator asking the questions. And, you know, the questions, in my opinion, and, I, and look, in full disclosure, I worked at CNN. They hired me and I, I was a commentator and chose to leave there in my own accord. Um, but the questions were supposed to be to a Republican audience. And the, the questions revolved around January 6th. The questions revolved around uh, the goings on in New York. The questions revolved around the, um, uh, the documents that were removed from Mar-a-Lago. You know, these traditionally in a Republican primary, and you would ask questions of what is your opinion on uh, transforming entitlements? Where do you believe the national debt should be? You know, uh, border security matters. A number of the questions that were asked during the town hall, it's perfectly fine. Donald Trump was capable and able to answer them, were more general election matters, in my opinion, because most of the people who I think were going to cast their ballot in a Republican primary are not making their final decision on who to vote for based on the outcome of the January 6th investigation. Yeah, that's interesting. I I um, watched that whole debate. And Corey, I have to admit, I, I've only seen clips of the president, you know, since he's been out of office. I've just seen a few clips of him. Like, I don't really pay attention. I don't watch a lot of news. But um, so I haven't really seen him. But when I started watching him, and I'm probably like 10, 15 minutes in, I'm like, oh my gosh, I've missed this guy. Like, I, oh my gosh, like, I forgot how much I enjoy him. Like, I love how he's such a fighter. And I'm probably not the only one in America that watched that and was like, oh, such a you know breath of fresh air. But do you get the sense that when people kind of see him again, that they kind of say the same thing? Like, oh my gosh, wow, I missed you. Look, I I've said this many times publicly. You know, uh, 
Barnum and Bailey's didn't go out of business because they couldn't find elephants. Donald Trump is the greatest show on earth. You have to go and watch him to 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 follow him, right? You you go to a sporting event because you know what's going to happen. You go to a Trump rally because you know what he's going to say or do. And you want to be there. You want to be able to tell your children and grandchildren, I was there when Donald Trump said this or did this or whatever it is. It is a show. It is a spectacle. Donald Trump understands the power of television. He understands the power of the soundbite. You have to remember, when he was the executive producer and the star of The Apprentice for nearly two decades, right, he had already honed his skills in the New York media world for 20 years. And now he has more time on the television than probably all of the news anchors combined through that expertise. And it made him exceptionally rich and it made him exceptionally popular in, in culture across the United States before he ever ran for politics. And so, look, when people see Donald Trump, they don't have to agree with what he says. They don't have to condone the way he delivers the message. But I think they have to respect that his convictions are true and don't waver. And when he does that, even if you disagree with him, you have to respect that someone believes so much of something that they're saying that they're unwilling and undeterred to bring that to the forefront. Um, you know, the issue of illegal immigration comes to mind in the 2016 campaign. Nobody else was talking about it except Donald Trump was. And, and that's really, I think, why there is a subset of the American people who will never waver of their support of Donald Trump. And, and maybe that's only 30 percent a Republican primary. But with an eight or a 10 or a 12 candidate field, as it continues to grow, that's going to be enough to win. Exactly. And Corey, I have a very different view, of course, of Trump. But I also recognize what you're saying in terms of the appeal that he has for a lot of people, which is why I never thought Ron DeSantis was going to be a strong candidate against him for the Republican nomination. But I wanted to ask you a little bit about sort of their policy differences, because as a Democrat, I, you know, I disagree with both of them very strongly on pretty much everything they say and do. So I haven't sort of gotten into the weeds. What's really the policy difference between Trump and DeSantis? Look, I think if you if you put them side by side, there's a couple of things. Ron DeSantis, yeah. um, first, when he did an interview with Tucker Carlson, probably six or eight weeks ago, talked about the war going on in the Ukraine, said it was a skirmish, uh, then ended up having a number of donors reach out to him and said, no, no, you know, I must be on the side of the Ukraine. What did Donald Trump say at the town hall? Yeah. They asked him, do you support Russia losing? And he said, I just want the violence to end, right? Mm -hmm. Donald Trump, who everybody thought was going to be this giant hawk on foreign policy and was going to start all these wars, has done the exact opposite. He's the first president in truly our lifetime in a four-year term that didn't start an international conflict, didn't send our troops overseas, actually brought them home. And, and, and that's a very different perspective than what Mike Pence or Ron DeSantis think. They both believe that America is strongest when we're fighting our enemies overseas, commonly known as the Reagan doctrine, right? Strength overseas, peace through strength. We determine, we show our military might in a foreign land to prevent that from transpiring here. Donald Trump says, no, no, no. Okay, we're going to bring our men and women in the military home. If you want our men and women in the military, particularly in Japan and other places, even though we've got a treaty, you're going to pay for that resource. And, you know, and, and, the, and the media mocked him for that. He said, look, you want an aircraft carrier? It's a billion a day. 
That's how much it costs, a billion a day, Saudi Arabia. You want us to, you know, to be in the Straits of Ramuth? You want us to be over in, in uh, your area? It's a billion a day. You pay us, we'll put an aircraft carrier that you don't. We'll bring our boys home. And there's one, there's one other policy difference I want to ask you about, and I promise I'll shut up because I know Pam has a million good questions to ask, and I feel like I'm hogging you, and I really don't want to do that. Um, Trump, I know, recently has said that he takes credit for Roe versus Wade being overturned. But he also said that a six-week abortion ban is too restrictive and that we need to have exceptions for rape, incest, and the health of the mother. That's a huge shift. It's very different from Ron DeSantis. Does this mean that other Republicans might follow his lead on this? Because frankly, he's right. The DeSantis path on abortion is political suicide. Well, Ron's changed, and I'll tell you why he changed. Uh, Ron's largest donor uh, is publicly available. You can see how much money he's given. I think he's given him $30 million now, is someone who has uh, approached a series of candidates on the issue of life and said 15 weeks is you know what you need to do. And so Ron DeSantis has systematically moved the Florida legislature to pass a bill so that he could get to that position. Uh, I believe it's completely donor-driven. I believe uh, Ron had no core position on the matter. The other thing that Ron, and, and look, I, I say this with admiration. I know Governor De, uh, DeSantis well. I've had dinner with him on numerous occasions. Um, when it came to entitlement reforms, right? Governor DeSantis, when he was a member of Congress, was supporting raising the age for his Social Security and Medicare. He was in favor of redoing um, you know, the entitlement reform plan. And it's something that Paul Ryan talked about back when he was the Speaker of the House. And it was something that was a buzz term of, hey, let's go do this because we need to have it solvent. Well, look, the truth is, as a 50-year-old guy, they've been telling me for 25 years it's going to go bankrupt. Mike Pence said yesterday that if we're lucky, we'll get 10 more years out of it. It's all BS, right? Because it's all moving numbers around and nobody's willing to make tough cuts. 70% of the federal budget is entitlements, right? And no one is going to change that. Everyone talks about it, but no one has the political courage to do it. And Ron DeSantis said he would do it. Um, he also said, and he was interviewed by um, uh, Pierce Morgan. Pierce Morgan asked him very point blank, if you were the president, would you ban TikTok? Ron DeSantis said, yes, I would. Well, 31 states have banned the use of TikTok and Florida has not been one of them. You know, there's been no pushback on things like that. So, you know, Ron has been a leader in some things. What, what, what I have noticed with Governor DeSantis, is, and, this, and this is not a pejorative, I, I think it's just factual, and I like the guy personally, is he's really good at the press conference, announcing something big is going to happen, but then the actual implementation is different. The converse of that is true with Donald Trump. He's really terrible at the press conference a lot of times, but he forces people inside the structure, the albatross, which is the federal government, to move swiftly to achieve results that most people didn't think could get done. That's fantastic. And I, I know I'm like you, I, I admire Governor DeSantis as well. Um, and I know you do too, but you're obviously you're a Trump guy, but I get it. So hey, listen, when you were talking about Trump being the greatest show on earth, um, what popped to my mind was 2015, you were kind enough to get my husband and I into Winnicott at high school like into the VIP room with like a bunch of other people from Hampton. And um, we listened to Donald Trump talk to us. It's the first time I've ever, I mean, I've watched The Apprentice for a million years, right? So this is this guy I know from TV. Um, and then we went out into the auditorium 
and he started talking and people are screaming and yelling and, and hooting and hollering. And I was like, what the hell is going on? Like, this is insane. I was like, I've been to a million political speeches in my life. None of them have ever been like this. It was so exciting. And I was like, there is something really, really special going on with this guy because people are just reacting in such a crazy fashion. Like he, he was amazing and I, I love him, but it was amazing that I, so I agree with you. Like he is a totally different animal. Well, and, and what most people don't recognize, I've had the privilege to, to see and spend time with uh, candidate Trump, Mr. Trump, President-elect Trump, President Trump, post-President Trump is in private, he's very self-deprecating. He's very magnanimous. He's exceptionally gracious in private. I can't tell you how many times, um, and I wrote about a couple of these in, in one or two of the books of, he would just pick up the phone and he would call me at home and I'd say, do you need something? Sir? He'd say, I just want to talk to the kids, say Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. How's your Thanksgiving going? You know, do you guys need anything? Didn't need to do that. And look, we've had our, we've had our public quarrels as well, right? Donald Trump and I, but, but the one thing that he and I, I think have always had is a mutual amount of respect for each other. Uh, I've always respected him for what he's accomplished. He's always respected me for my work ethic and my tenacity and, and my fight. Uh, does that mean we always agree on everything? No, but you know, when it comes down to it, he's the kind of guy who, if you need a favor, he's going to do anything he can to help you. And I've seen it with charity. How many times people have called me from charities and said, can you get us a night at Mar-a-Lago to auction off for our charity? Would you get something signed by the president? And, and Donald Trump does it time and time and time again, not for the public relations aspect, just because that's who he personally is. And, and you know, sometimes uh, you do those things and they go unseen and you don't get the credit for it. And other times people are out talking about, you know, all the great things they're doing. Uh, he's been blessed to have a lot of money. I saw him give $150,000 to the Marine Corps Law Enforcement Foundation in New York one night because they were looking for money for fallen police officers. No press. We were at a dinner, black tie dinner. He just stood up and said, $150,000 from me. And, uh, you know, there were a lot of wealthy people in the room. Nobody matched him. He didn't do it for press. It was never reported on. He just did it because it was the right thing to do. And, and that's at the end of the day, you know, how I see him. I, I see the faults. I'm not blind. I see the the chaos and and bedlam that sometimes follows around him, and sometimes I think he truly enjoys it, as in the Game of Thrones, right? The strongest will get to the top, and then you get a fight to stay on top. I, I see all that absolutely, and I think you know that's his management style. But I also have seen Donald Trump in um, some of the worst times of his life, and probably some of the best times of his life, at least in the last you know nine years. This is really fascinating. I want to ask you a question about some. I think DeSantis took a pretty big hit in Florida last night, and I would love your thoughts on this. Jacksonville, which has been a GOP yeah. stronghold, just elected a Democrat, a woman, first woman mayor of um, Jacksonville, Donna Deegan, and she beat a guy who'd been endorsed by Ron DeSantis and who outraised her four to one. Am I reading too much into this? It seems like a big defeat for Ron DeSantis. Well, I don't think you're reading too much into it. Look, I would always caution somebody from directly correlating an endorsement to someone else's election victory. Okay. And the reason for that is candidates matter and running a campaign matters and all those things matter. That being said, it does go to uh, the political nature of making good endorsements, right? So what we also saw last night was Kentucky. The gubernatorial yes. election uh, for the Republicans was in Kentucky last night. The African-American attorney general 
Daniel Cameron, was endorsed by Donald Trump, the former ambassador to the United Nations under Donald Trump and to Canada. Kelly Kraft was endorsed by Ron DeSantis. Kelly finished third in that race. She finished third and it wasn't close. She lost by 30 points. Um, you know, and again, maybe part of that was the quality and the caliber of the candidate and the campaign that was run. But it also goes to show Ron DeSantis was 0-2 last night, taking a major loss in his home state. The first time they've lost the Jacksonville mayor's race and in really recent memory. And Ron was all in there. And so, you know, I think you always have to caution yourself of understanding a candidate's coattails or blaming a candidate for an election loss. So I, I do I don't think you're reading too much into it, but it is only a microcosm of what I think is to come. And we've seen Donald Trump have enormous electoral success in endorsements of primaries, but that doesn't necessarily correlate to the general election victories. And at the end of the day, you got to win the race that you're in first, but the goal is to win the whole thing. Yeah. We, and we saw that in New Hampshire's um, general election with Caroline Levitt, who is a superstar and who I think is phenomenal, I think is going to do amazing things for the Republican Party in the future. Um, and of course, General Don Baldock, who is running for um, Senate against uh, Maggie Hassan. I thought Caroline Levitt was a phenomenal candidate. Uh, I loved her. I thought she had spunk and tenacity and fire. And I agree with you, Pam. I think she's going to, if she chooses to get into electoral politics in the future, she will be successful. I told her, I think she has the capacity to be the governor, a U.S. senator from New Hampshire, anything she wants. She's phenomenal. She resonated with people. She went out there and worked her tail off, uh, earned the opportunity to be the Republican nominee, and ultimately lost in a race that um, was probably beyond her control because of the national political environment. Um, but that said, I think I think Caroline Levitt, if she would have made it to Washington, despite of her young age, being 25, would have been a tremendous asset and an opportunity for young women to look to and say, look where she was five years ago in college. And today she's a member of Congress. Look, uh, that's a that's a great success, success story. Even though she lost, she didn't lose. I think she raised her profile. I think she ran an incredibly strong campaign. And just because you didn't have success at the ballot box doesn't mean it's a, a long-term loss. Corey, I just want to ask you about another issue that I think is going to be really important in the general election. I totally agree with you that, you know, Trump's support with his base is absolutely rock solid. There's no question to me that he's going to be the Republican nominee. And by the way, I knew he was going to be the Republican nominee in 2016 before a lot, even some Republicans, friend, not, not Pam, but other Republicans I talked to were like, no, he's not going to be the nominee. I was like, are you kidding? He's obviously going to be the nominee. He's obviously going to be the nominee. And he is signaling a shift on abortion. I think one of the other, what I call the big three issues, the second one I'm going to get to, is gun violence. Now, earlier in his term, in his term, he signaled that he was open to some gun safety measures, but then it seemed like, you know, that obviously that didn't come to pass. Will we see a similar shift on gun safety that we're now seeing on abortion from Trump? You know, I don't know. Um, I will say that I remember during his administration, there was this thing called a bump stock. If you remember it, it's a part of a gun that basically they outlawed. I am a Second Amendment guy, right? I'm a I'm a total gun guy, right? I was a police officer in the state of New Hampshire. I mean, I I just uh, I didn't even know what a bump stock was. So when they banned this thing, 
you know, some of the gun enthusiasts went up in arms. And I said, listen, I'm a guy who's got guns, right? I always have. I, you know, I, I don't know what the issue was. And Donald Trump was kind of taken back by what the issue was on that matter. So do I think there's an opportunity? Uh, I think the Supreme Court just ruled today, as a matter of fact, that in Wisconsin, they will allow an assault weapons ban to stay in effect. Uh, the U.S. That's Supreme news Court, to me. I hadn't seen that. Wow. That just happened today. So, you know, I, I think what we're seeing across the country, and this always happens to be the case, is as an issue continues to percolate, not just once or twice or three times, but it seems now on a very regular occurrence, we're seeing this mass violence being committed um, with the use of, of firearms. And we have to get to the reason for that. Is it a mental health deficiency? Is it that we don't have enough laws on the books? Is it access to weapons? Is it, you know, what is the real reason for that? And I think somebody has to come up with a solution. And, and look, what we have known is when you just straight out ban guns in cities like Chicago or at the time Washington, D.C., it didn't correlate to a reduction in violent crimes because of those weapons. So I caution people of saying, all we're going to do is ban every gun in America and that's going to stop the violence. Because if that was the case, Chicago and Philadelphia and New York City would be the safest cities in America. And statistically well, speaking, they're not. It's impossible to ban all the guns in the country. And, you know, even a gun guy like you, I'm sure would agree with me that mass shootings are abhorrent. And you are at least raising the issue of whether there are enough laws on the books. And I, a lot of Republicans won't even go there. They just switch the topic to mental health, which obviously is a factor. But is it the only factor? I personally don't think that it is. I think it has to do with access to guns and who has access to guns. Well, do you remember the great late Charlton Heston? So, <laughs> yes. so well, not only was he Moses, but later in his career, he became... A he became the uh, president of the National Rifle Association. That's right. I had forgotten that. So yeah. Tom Selleck, Charlton Heston. When Charlton Heston was elected uh, almost uh, 30 years ago now, um, I think it was 30 years ago this year, in his acceptance speech, he said, you know what we'll do if, if the, uh, at the time the Clinton administration is willing to prosecute every criminal who is uh, attempting to use any gun in any felony, including the purchase of a gun in one major city in America, the NRA will support any piece of legislation the bill that the, at the time the Clinton uh, administration wanted in favor of, which means if you walked into a gun store and you were a felon, you tried to buy a gun, every person in that major city was prosecuted to the full extent of the law. And the Department of Justice said, we don't have the ability to do it. That was in that was literally 30 years ago. And, and I have my own inclinations and my own stories about the Department of Justice today and what has it transpired over the last six years. Um, but but there has to be a will to actually go after the people who are committing these crimes. And, and again, we can talk about Rudy Giuliani and where his current predicaments are, but when he was elected mayor of New York City, the first thing he did, he started to crack down on those individuals who were washing your car at the stop sign with their spit. And he started going after them for jaywalking. When you prosecuted those crimes, it prevented the larger crimes from happening. And I think in some of these places, there is no desire to prosecute some of these individuals for those crimes. No, I agree with you. I mean, you look at Chicago and, you know, every weekend you'll, there'll be a statistic that's thrown out that said, you know, over the weekend there were 63 shootings and, you know, 42 people were injured and 12 died. And that's every weekend. 
And these people do not possess the guns lawfully. Well, it was interesting because the Democratic National Convention this year happens to be being held in a city where um, the violence rate, you have a a, a five, it's five out of every hundred thousand people are being murdered, right? Under that scenario, their own delegates, if they bring half a million delegates to the convention, 25 of them are dead. I mean, it's just not a good idea. And, And so, you know, this Two weeks ago, my I've got twin eighth graders who go to the public school systems here in the state of New Hampshire, and their school trip was to the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia. And knowing of the violence there, I refused to let my two boys go there for fear. Isn't that a sad state of affairs that one of the founding cities of our entire country, you have to worry about safety for your children to go there? Uh, I mean, there is no mother who wants to raise their child on the south side of Chicago today. Not one in America. You know, Pam raised the issue of illegal guns, which I also think is is a really important issue because there are people who who are not supposed to have guns who do them, who who do have them. Is that something that you think Trump might be willing to look at, cracking down on illegal guns? Absolutely. Because I don't I don't think the NRA. I think the NRA likes illegal guns. They get more sales that way. You know what I think? I think anybody who is bringing uh, guns in, predominantly from the southern border, we have an unbelievably porous border. We're the only civilized country in the world that doesn't close their borders, right? We have an immigration system that is so broken that if you were to recommend us to go to the Australian system or the Canadian system, one which is based on uh, a need as opposed to numbers, right? You'd be considered xenophobic, racist, you know, misogynistic, and every other word under the books. But you know, no one blames Australia for saying if we have a certain need, we're going to recruit those people to come here. You know, we see not only guns, but but much worse than guns is the fentanyl pouring across the southern border. You know, we know that in the last year alone, the Texas Department of Public Safety has. Um, has confiscated enough fentanyl coming from the southern border to kill every man, woman, and child in the United States. When does that crisis raise to a level of people actually caring? It's 3,000 people a week. It's a 9-11 tragedy every week in this country. And, And by and large, the media doesn't cover it. And by and large, this administration has said, we have a secure border. You know, at some point, People have to get up and do something. And what I saw just yesterday was the governor of Texas has asked all the Republican governors in America to send troops and state police and technology. And a number of them are doing that because they've spent four and a half billion dollars of Texas taxpayer money securing a border, which is really the job of the federal government. Right. And if if people in the country are not paying attention to the numbers that we're seeing at the border, and the fentanyl crisis, then they are just shutting their eyes to, like you said, a complete disaster that occurs every single day. Mara and I see it firsthand um, in well, our lives, and it's well, an absolute shame, and it's terrible, I, horrible. I would have to disagree respectfully um, that the, you know that what's happening at the border is is not as you're reporting. I don't think we have an urban border. We are seeing a reduction in immigration. People thought when Title 42 ended, there would be a surge. There is no surge. 
but we can agree to disagree on this. That's no, fine. You're not wrong about that, Laura. You're not no, wrong. No, I, I actually don't because we're never going to agree. And I really want to ask you about no, possible. But I agree with you on this. There was no surge at Title was no Title surge. 42. Yeah. Okay. When Title 42 expired, there was all this discussion that there was going to be a massive surge coming right. across the border. That did not transpire. And the reason partially was because of the increased security leading up to Title 42. And if you listen to Customs and Border Protection Patrol officers, you know, they're apprehending thousands of people a day. And, and the real concern is the human smuggling the rate that's taking place, the, the human trafficking, which is taking place. At, at what point, you know, if you go and look at that, do we say no more? It won't be tolerated. When do we contact our contemporaries and our government officials in the other countries? Because they're not all coming from Mexico. These are individuals who are walking from the triangle all the way through Mexico to claim asylum. And that's we seriously, Corey, we seriously, we shouldn't talk about it. We're never going to agree. And that's, and that's totally fine. And I really do. And I, I appreciate everything you're saying. I really do. And, and two thirds of Democrats think that immigration should be more strongly enforced. So it's not just Republicans who, who have concerns, but I do want to ask you about candidates for vice president, because I have two theories about leading contenders. And I want to know what you think. The first, and I think the reports that you're working for, and I'm not even sure I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Is it Vivek Ramaswamy? That, that is one of uh, the candidates who's currently running for president. And I, I see him as a leading contender for VP because I think having two white males is not a good idea. Uh, and I think, and he's been very pro-Trump in everything that he said. The other person that I, I know Pam has one she wants to ask about, but the one that the other one that I really have thought about for years is Elise Stefanik. She has been such she's really she's really changed politically since she was first elected, and she's become very very loyal to Trump, really on everything. And I'm thinking, you know, he might he might like to run with a woman who supports him in everything. Pam, Those are my theories, huh? I want to see who Pam's other option is. I would go Pam's with right. Governor Christie Nome. So, would... so of those candidates, I know them all very well. Uh, uh, I think Vivek Ramaswamy, who is incredibly, he's incredibly smart, uh, amazingly articulate, Ivy League educated. He's 37 years old, has sold two companies, and some say his net worth is north of $2 billion. Um, you know, I think he is raising his profile doesn't truly believe he's going to be the president of the United States, but has created an immense fall and he will be on the debate stage. And that will that will play to his advantage. I also think that the uh, governor's race in Ohio is an open race in two years. And if he loses this race, he could be the governor of the eighth largest state in America at 40 years old. Uh, he could also be very much considered to be um, a nominee or potential nominee for the treasury, uh, secretary of treasury position in the next Republican administration. So that's one. You know, Elise Stefanik, I happen to know very well. I've traveled with her around the country. We've campaigned with personal friends. And so uh, I say this out of, out of respect and admiration to her. She doesn't bring anything to the table other than being uh, one of 435 members of Congress from a, an area of a state which you're not going to win. I think she's been a phenomenal leader in the House. Uh, but she doesn't have a big fundraising prowess and doesn't have a large national profile. Now, um, you know, 
Have we seen members of Congress pluck from obscurity, a la Paul Ryan with Mitt Romney? Sure, right? He was the Ways and Means Committee chairman. I'm really nobody who he was, but sure. Uh, is she a contender? I think so. Let me give you another name. Uh, Kim Reynolds, the governor of Iowa. Uh, exceptionally smart, as a two-term governor, uh, was a lieutenant governor before that, a county commissioner, has been in career. She's been a career politician, but she's very good and very loyal. And it happens to be the first state to hold a presidential primary, a presidential caucus. Um, I think Christy Nome is a phenomenal record, big, big supporter of President Trump, has raised her profile and done a lot of the really good things. The downside is you're from a small state, which Republicans will take for granted if they don't win in South Dakota and North Dakota and Wyoming and Utah, we're in big, big trouble in an election. So, um, but having her on the ticket, uh, particularly if it came to debating Kamala Harris, great. Uh, and the only other name I would throw out, and, and I, will, I will concede that Donald Trump is the only individual who I don't believe has to choose someone based on their ethnicity or their race, because see, he is such a cult of personality that when I was the chairman of the vice presidential selection committee and picked Mike Pence, nobody said you can't have two old white guys, right? They said, we need a guy who's going to soften Donald Trump up and knows Washington, D.C. Look, I think Tim Scott, who's going to launch his presidential campaign next Monday, uh, is a phenomenal candidate. He is a rags to riches American success story whose literal grandfather was a slave. Two generations ago, his family were slaves. And today he's a United States senator and has a real opportunity. He's going to announce on Monday he's running for president of the United States. Um, he's dynamic. He is uh, unbelievably good on the stump and getting better. And he continues to raise money. And, and you know, I, I think he's someone who really people should be paying attention to also. What I know, I know you know him well. Um, what happened to Governor Chris Christie? Like what I mm -hmm. have recently in the news, like just going to town on President Trump. And I'm like, I don't understand what happened. I know like four years ago, they were close, and now all of a sudden he hates them. What's the story there? Well, look, Governor Christie was the chairman of our transition team. I named him. I appointed him the chairman of our transition team in 2016 so that if Donald Trump had won, he would help put the government together. Um, the, the, the truth is, and it's publicly known, that Jared Kushner and Chris Christie are mortal enemies. Mm -hmm. And it goes back to the fact that when Jared Kushner's father was in New Jersey, conducting illegal activities. Chris Christie was the U.S. attorney and Jared Kushner's uncle turned his own brother in. And Chris Christie had nothing but an obligation under the law to prosecute him, put him in jail. Now, where Jared really took exception, because Jared was an undergraduate at Harvard at the time, was that when Chris Christie, when, when Charlie Kushner came up for parole, Chris Christie actually flew to Alabama and protested the parole. So this wasn't just like, hey, we're going to let him out. Chris actually flew down there as the U.S. attorney and said no. And, and Charlie ended up spending like another seven months in jail. So Jared took it very personally. Um, and so there has always been that animus between the Kushners and Chris Christie. Chris Christie was offered for a brief period the opportunity to potentially be the chief of staff in the White House. Uh, and, and that did not go over well with the Kushners and um I, I think Chris, who is a very capable politician, he's a smart guy. Mary Pat, his wife, is uh, an incredible woman. I know her very well. Uh, he's got three great kids. And, and I do think a little bit, and I would say this, and I talk to Chris often, I think he's a little jealous that he missed his window. 
And if he would have run for president of the United States in 2012 against Barack Obama, uh, regardless of the popularity, I think Chris could have given him a good run for his money, probably a better run than Mitt Romney gave him, probably would have won the nomination. And, and running for president is a moment in time. You have to catch lightning in a bottle, no matter who you are. You can't recapture that four years later, uh, which would have been 2016. And now you fast forward eight years and Chris's only path, if you will, to the Republican nomination is being the anti-Trump candidate. And, and that path is riddled with mistakes because it's not a clean path. There's multiple other candidates in that path. So I think there's a little bit of personality there. Um, and, and Chris, I think, is probably a little disappointed looking back now to 2012 that he didn't make the decision to run himself. That's really interesting because I remember back in 2012 um, thinking that like Chris Christie was so great because he was like so outspoken. And then as time goes by and then Donald Trump comes along and like, say, 2015, I was like, wow, like Chris Christie was sort of like the original Trump in a sense. Like he was he was outspoken and had that New Jersey bombastic attitude. And obviously Donald Trump like takes it up 100 degrees. But I mean, I feel like Christie was sort of like that original Trump. Trump light and then Trump came along and then so it's sort of like well what do we need Christie for if we have Trump right like that's my- and, and we, we looked at Governor Christie uh very hard to be the vice presidential mm-hmm. nominee with us so as the chairman of the committee it was just a three-person committee me the former ambassador to Australia and some uh dirtbag who ended up in jail for a while named Manafort it was just the three of us that that got to um you know make the choice and at the end of the day Donald Trump basically said hey fellas figure it out I don't care who you pick, basically, because I'm going to be the president and I don't really care. So we it was an extensive, you know, it was a 22 person deep dive with uh, every social media story that they had ever been part of posted to Twitter or Facebook or Instagram and you name it. I mean, it was an exceptionally intense thing, including all their tax returns. Um, you know, this was no joke. This was a serious thing. And Chris Christie one of the, was one of the three finalists, along with obviously Mike Pence. And it wasn't until I went to A.B. Culverhouse's office, who was the third member of our committee, and he had done the same uh, project for Mitt Romney as he was considering others and, um, and Bush before him. A.B. is kind of a well-known political powerhouse in D.C., and he was an attorney. And so uh, we used his office, and he basically pro- started providing us the opposition research, which the team had put together on our three finalists. And it came down to, and it's a slight exaggeration. But it came down to, you know, the last three. And when they handed me the the piece of paper on Mike Pence and said, uh, Mike got a parking ticket once. He paid double the fine and prayed to God. I said, there's our guy. Right? Guy. And, you know, so did do you think that Trump's experience with Pence as his vice president would cause him to have a different approach to picking a running mate this time? Might he have a different role for his vice president in a second term from the one that Mike Pence had in his first? You know, I I, uh, I was the only person in America to be paid by both uh, Donald Trump and Mike Pence at the same time. I served as a senior advisor to both campaigns, both both entities, all through their four years in the White House. So mm-hmm. I was the head of uh, Mike Pence's outside group. Uh, I, I served as a senior advisor there. So I traveled with the vice president a lot. I traveled with the president an enormous amount of times. Um, I thought the two were perfect for each other. Mike Pence was incredibly differential. He never made a mistake uh, in his time in the White House. He looked like a computer program. If you had to say what the vice president looked like, here's the guy, gray hair, perfect, right? Speaks perfectly, you know, perfect inflection. Somewhat, and I and I don't mean this in a pejorative way, somewhat boring, 
but never to overshadow the president. Right. He, he knew exactly what his role was and and um, was exceptionally grateful for the opportunity. Don't forget, Mike Pence, when we asked him to join the ticket, was on a Friday afternoon. He had to make his decision because under the state of Indiana's laws, you could not yeah. both run for a federal office and the governor at the same time. Yeah. And we flew Mike up into Teterboro um, and landed him there at four o'clock in the afternoon because he had he wanted to see Donald Trump one last time before five o'clock before he pulled the trigger. And so that's how close it was. Um, and, and I think, you know, look, I think being the vice president to Donald Trump is an incredibly difficult job. You know, when you look at what Dick Cheney's job was for George W. Bush, they were almost equals. Right? Dick Cheney had worlds of experience where George W. Bush was the governor of Texas, which sounds really great, but the governor of Texas doesn't really have any authority. Right. Really, the lieutenant governor does. Um, so, you know, and now you see uh, Barack Obama. What did he do? He picked Joe Biden, someone with 50 years of Washington, D.C. experience to offset his experience. You know, I think if Donald Trump were given the opportunity to go back, uh, I think he would look to an outsider. That's just my initial take. Someone who's not in Washington, D.C. full time. Someone who is very potentially a female. I think the names that you've mentioned are very real. Uh, Chrissy Nome, Kim Reynolds, um, you know, some say Nikki Haley, but I, I think the personal relationship between Donald Trump and Nikki Haley would preclude that. I happen to know kind of where that really stands. So I, I think that the VP list for Trump is small. Loyalty is a significant factor to him and somebody who has the ability to go out and fight. Because what most people don't recognize about Donald Trump is the reason he goes out and fights is particularly true when nobody else is fighting for him. When he sees his staff, Corey Lewandowski, Kellyanne Conway, whoever it is on television fighting for Donald Trump, he doesn't feel as obligated to go out and do it. When Kaylee McEnany was behind the podium or Sarah Huckabee was behind the podium, fighting the the narrative that he wanted to push back on, you didn't see Donald Trump out there. When those individuals weren't there anymore or weren't doing the job, that's when you would see him call an impromptu press conference or bring the media in. And so I think part of the requirement of the vice president in a next Trump administration, if there is one, would be someone who's going to go out and fight. Yeah, yesterday, Corey, I had the opportunity to meet Mike Pence for the first time. I was at the New Hampshire Home Builders. Um, they had like a lunchtime meet and greet with him. There's about 20 of us there. And I met him for the first time. And first of all, I, I just did not know what to expect. Um, and I've always had a, a good feeling about him. I've always respected him, but um, just really didn't know what tremendous about, about him. Um, and he was really warm, number one. So when I first like met him, he was extremely warm, very gracious. And then he talked to us for a little bit and I was like, wow, he's really nice. And he's, he was funny. And he talked for quite some time about how much he loves President Trump and how thankful he is for President Trump and how thankful he is for those four years. And he was really, really um, gracious and very thankful. And um, I kind of, after hearing him for a while, I kind of wouldn't expect him to be another way, but I was sort of surprised because I, I didn't know what the relationship was at this point in time, but he was like, I love President Trump. Fantastic. So I was really taken back, but also like it, it made me feel good. Mike Pence, and I say this, is a truly good man. Truly, to his core, he's a good man. He 
he and his family put God in front of everything else. Every decision they make is made after consultation with God. And, and I'll tell you this story. As I was finalizing the potential list to be a vice presidential candidate, uh, we had to, I had to call a mutual friend of ours who was an Indiana resident. I called him. I said, hey, do you think Governor Pence would ever want to be considered? And Steve called me back. He said, let me call the governor. I knew Mike, but I didn't know him well. And I didn't want to call him and make it look like, you know, the story get out. So he says, let me call him and get right back to you, Corey. I said, hey, no problem. So the guy calls me back and he says, uh, the governor and Karen are driving their daughter to college this weekend. And they're going to talk to God and pray on it. And I said, does he have a direct line to God? How long does this take? Because I need an answer, right? I, I'm seeing Trump at 7 a.m. on Monday morning. So if God doesn't get back to him by that time, like he's off the list. And uh, and I waited all weekend, like I always, you know, and then all of a sudden I'm, I'm walking up to go see Mr. Trump at 7 a.m. on Monday morning. And I had this massive Excel document, which had everybody's name on it, date of birth, social security number, you know, military history, veteran status, the whole thing, everything, right? And the very last thing on there in pen, Mike Pence, I write it in because he called me five minutes before and said, yes, he wants to be. I write it in. I still have a piece of paper. I'll probably put it in the presidential library. And what Donald Trump did is I gave it to him is this big giant spreadsheet. And he looked at it, he took out his black marker from his pen, from his pocket, and he wrote the initial D on it, meaning Donald means the paper was approved. D. So I have that paper that says, here are the people that Donald Trump considered to be the vice presidential candidates. Mike Pence's name was written in pen because he waited so long because he wanted to talk to God. And I, and I truly believe he wanted to pray on what was best for him and his family, knowing the pros and cons. Um, I've flown with him and Karen a lot on Air Force Two. Um, I have never, ever heard Mike Pence say a bad word about anybody on anything, ever, never once. That's who he is. He's a truly, truly good person. Corey, I just want to answer the last three of the big issues that I think the Republicans need to move on if they're going to move beyond their base, and that's climate change. When you're looking at the electorate in 2022, 40% is going to be uh, millennials and Gen Z. Climate is one of their top concerns. What might we see any movement from Trump or Republicans on fighting climate change and reducing our dependence on fossil fuels? So, so I think the real issue is what's the rest of the world going to do? You know, we only uh, the United States only represents about twelve percent of, mm -hmm. of the climate uh, matters in the entire world. So even if we were to force reductions onto our providers of fossil fuels. What does that do to China? What does it do to India? You know, the secretary, the deputy secretary of energy was testifying last week in front of the U.S. Senate and Senator Kennedy from Louisiana asked him a question. I'm sure you saw it. He said, if we give you the $50 billion that you're asking for, for climate change matters in the United States, how much is that going to reduce either the uh, CO2 going on or the temperature, the core temperature of the United of the, of the Earth. How much is it? $50 billion. How much is it going to matter? And his answer was, I have no idea. Well, what are you going to do with $50 billion? Well, we're going to try and do these things. The problem is it's a global issue. And while the United States can be a leader on some things, when you represent 12% of the, the total carbon emissions in the in the world, if the other leaders of this world don't have a desire, and they clearly don't, to engage in the matter, then it's very hard. And, and look, I think, unfortunately, and I know you're not going to like this, there's a lot of hypocrisy around this issue. You know, John Kerry flies over to 
uh, talk about climate change on his private jet. And they say, John, how do you do that? And he said, well, I bought the offset. What the fuck does that mean? I bought an offset. I, bought, I, I, played, I planted three more plants. I mean, it's, it's, it's the hypocrisy of, of the ultra wealthy who want to have their lifestyle and then preach to everybody else of what they should do. You must reduce your carbon footprint as I fly around on my plane, Bill Gates, to Australia to go and take my yacht out. You know, it's very hard for the average person who's barely getting by, who had to pay $4 a gallon of gasoline to get to work every day, and now it's only three oh five, to sit there and say, you want me to stop driving to work? Because we tried this two years ago during COVID. Nobody went to work. But there, there you do understand that young voters are not going to say, oh, yeah, well, since the United States isn't everything, we're not going to do it. They are going to demand. They are demanding that our leaders do everything they can. I mean, we live in New England, the northeast of the United States, which is more impacted by climate change than any other part of the world. We are seeing it with our very own eyes. We see houses on the Cape literally falling into a cliff. The climate, I said to my daughter a few weeks, no, last, last winter, I said, the climate of my childhood is gone. She said, the climate of my childhood is gone. So this is what you're going to hear from a lot of voters, but especially Gen X and millennials. And if the answer is, well, the rest of the world isn't doing anything, so we're not going to either, they're not going to have it. No, I think the question is, are you a monolithic voter, right? Because it's one issue of many. And, and I think the days of being the single issue voter are gone. The, the days of only voting for someone because of their pro-life or pro-choice stance, the days of voting for someone, because, because the world is too complex for that. You know, I may not necessarily agree with someone on their issue of life or abortion, but I could agree with them on six other things and say, that's the best candidate to represent me. And, and I think the issue of climate is one of those. There are people who are exceptionally passionate about this particular matter. But they also must ask themselves, if I continue to allow the status quo to transpire, is it going to get any better? Because right now we supposedly have a president in the White House who has made this a priority. And so if we now have a record of that individual over four years, but maybe their economy hasn't been so good. So maybe they're, they're pro-Joe Biden on the issue of climate, but maybe they're anti-Joe Biden on the issue of of their personal economy and their personal safety and drugs and other issues, right? So I think voters are very sophisticated. I say it all the time, right? I don't think there's any one issue uh, that you can look at and say, oh my God, this is the issue that is going to drive every voter to the polls. There's a lot of discussion about the issue of abortion and the impact that that's going to have in the upcoming election. Uh, the number one issue, you know what the number one issue is in the state of Iowa right now, according to the public opinion polls, 24% of the people. Know what it is? China buying foreign ag land. China buying farms. Yeah. Foreign agents buying farms for fear of national security implications. So not abortion, not ethanol, not the climate. 24% of the respondents said that the number one issue facing the people of Iowa right now is China coming in and buying their ag land. That is unheard of. Nobody could have predicted that eight or 10 years ago. It was not even a, top, a, a topic of conversation because in theory, conservatives say, hey, go sell your land to anybody you want. It's yours, right? Now conservatives are saying, you can't sell to that Chinese conglomerate who's going to come in and take out our slaughterhouses. 
to take out our cattle, to take out the food that we grow every day because we're the breadbasket of America and decide to stop growing. Because once they control your food, they control you. And that is an amazing story that has really started to percolate up through the polling data right now. Corey, you just meant, just said something that sort of drugged my um, thought process here. Do you think that today, and compare both parties to maybe 20, 30 years ago, that today the Republican Party stands with sort of like the blue collar guy, the middle class, when 30 years ago we didn't. And today the Democrats stand more with like the well-educated, uh, wealthier people. And that wasn't like that 20, 30 years ago. Do you, is that true or no? Well, look, I think if you look at uh, the coastal elites, the people who have terminating degrees, so PhDs, LLMs, et cetera, that are predominantly JD. working. JD, right, JD, right? Somebody on, on, on the, east, uh, the east and the west of the country, right? Those coastal elites that are working at the institutions of higher learning are vastly, vastly considered liberals, Democrats, progressives, whatever term you want to use, right? There's very few ultra conservatives at Harvard University. There may be, I mean, I was a, I was a fellow at Harvard. Okay. I mean, it wasn't easy. I, I went over to Stanford and was over there. I taught at Chicago, but I was by far in the minority. This is, this is not somewhere where conservatives feel comfortable. So what do I see? I see Pam, to your point, your question is many of those Blue collar workers in Michigan, in Ohio, in Pennsylvania, rural Pennsylvania, Western PA, right? Allegheny County. Uh, those who relied on us to build things that saw their jobs exported for the cost of cheaper labor overseas when it came to uh, the opportunity to export jobs and import products lost their livelihoods and they want those back. Now, is it a reality? I don't know. We see car manufacturing very difficult because now it's robots and some of it's taking place in South Carolina now because it's cheaper, etc. But but the truth is, you know, the American people have a, a insatiable appetite for uh, the best quality at the lowest price. And because of that, you know, our system has been designed now that it's cheaper to import these things from overseas than, than to pay the workers. And, and that is a real tragedy going forward. So I think there is a subset of the blue collar workers particularly in what they call the blue wall, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, uh, Michigan, places where Donald Trump won in 16, but didn't in 20, who had been disenfranchised by both the Democrats and Republicans for saying, we're going to ship your jobs overseas. Don't worry about it. You'll get a better product. You have to pay, you know, and you'll pay less for it. And so I think the Republicans have tried to get there. I think, you know, in 20 years, I think the Democratic Party is completely unrecognizable. Not only could JFK never win his nomination, Bill Clinton could never win the nomination today. Don't forget, Bill Clinton was a Southern governor of a conservative state when he ran for president of the United States. And, and he lost to Paul Songus in, from Massachusetts in the New Hampshire primary, but he came in second place, so they called him the comeback kid, right? Because he was never supposed to do that. And he went on to basically govern with a balanced budget. Right. Bill Clinton balanced the budget when the Republicans had controlled the House and the Senate. That's the last time our government's budget was balanced was on the under the Clinton administration. Right. You, the conservative Democrat from a moderate or conservative state as the governor doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. And so if Bill Clinton were to run today, 
to the Democratic nomination, he would be run out of, the, out of the party by the AOCs and the Bernie Sanders of the world saying you're not progressive enough. Yeah. Well, we've seen that on the right, too. Ronald Reagan oh, could get the nomination today. No way. Well, here's the thing. I, I think on the right, what, what you have is you get such a divide of those who are the purists, right, that that Chris Sununu will never be the Republican nominee for governor, I uh, for, for president. Chris is a very good general election candidate, a la Charlie Baker, a la Larry Hogan, right? a la the guy up in Vermont, Scott, right? These guys are very good general election candidates. And when you look at their favorability ratings, they're always in the top 10 nationwide for governor favorability ratings. But nowadays, if they had a serious challenge from the right, they can't win a Republican primary. And I believe, and I happen to know something about this, that's why Charlie Baker didn't run for his last term, oh, even yeah. though he could have, is he knew he would have lost a Republican primary. Absolutely. No question. No question, Corey. I'm, I serve in the Massachusetts Democratic State Committee. And um, that was really clear. The Republican, Massachusetts Republican State Committee shifted considerably while Baker was governor. He tried to stop it from happening. He tried to get people elected to the state committee who would be more moderate. He wasn't able to do that. And there was, he, he just got to the point where he couldn't get the Republican on nomination anymore. You did work on the Jeff Deal campaign. So I just want to ask you quickly for your insights. But before I do tell you that, the general consensus in Massachusetts was that there was no way that Jeff Deal was going to win. So if you have any part of you thinking that maybe they could have done something differently, no way. He just couldn't win. Well, you have to remember, look, part of it is... Jeff was not a good fundraiser. That's part of it. But more than that, it was a huge opportunity for the Democrats to pick up a seat that had been held in Republican hands for, yeah. I think, like it was eight years of the last thirty years. Other yeah. than other than um, uh, what's his name, the guy from the western part of the state, African American guy, what's his name? The governor, Deval Patrick. Yeah. Deval Patrick. Other than him, the Republicans have held that seat since Bill Weld. He's the only Democrat to hold that seat. So yeah. from Bill Weld to Paul Salucci to Jane Swift to Mitt Romney, right? Deval Patrick won, but then Charlie Baker won. I mean, that's that means more Republicans have held the governor seat in Massachusetts than in the state of New Hampshire. Which that's is Massachusetts. We're not as blue as people think we are. Yeah. Well, but 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 look, I don't think anybody had the false notion that Jeff Deal was going to win that race, except the curse of the AG is very real in Massachusetts. Yes, that's true. Yeah. You know, ask Scott Harshbarger. He didn't do so well. <laughs> That's so funny. Corey, first of all, I had um, about 22 questions I wanted to ask you, and we got to zero of them. Just right. like Then I'm winning. Uh, that's called winning. <laughs> come back. Come back. Have you come back? Because I seriously, I wanted you to tell us stories about, like, the Trump campaign and all of this great stuff I wanted to talk about. And we didn't talk about any of it, even though I enjoyed everything we talked about, but we got to absolutely nothing. So you're definitely going to have to come back again, if yeah, you will. I totally enjoyed this too. And I mean, Corey, obviously we're not going to agree on things. And part of this, that's what this whole show is about. We don't agree. It's okay. We'll still treat each other with respect and we like each other. So it, it's been a, it's been an incredible conversation. I don't know if you could tell Corey, but I was taking notes like the whole time because you kept saying quotable things. Well, thank you. And hopefully I didn't get myself in trouble, which I tend to do. But look, let me let me just end with this because um, you know, I, I don't know really who the, the viewership is, but 
I'm a guy who grew up in a place called Lowell, Massachusetts. So if you're from Massachusetts, you know it. Okay? WCAP. That was my, 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 my radio show. And CAP, right? yeah. 980 WCAP. So I yes, grew up the voice of the valley. Yeah. Uh, right above Cappy's Copper Kettle is where that oh was. Oh my God. Yes. So, you know, I, I grew up in a place that we had no money. Nobody had any money. We were poor, but nobody knew they were poor because everybody was poor. Right. Uh, and it was truly a melting pot. Lowell has a history of, you know, it didn't matter if you're blue, white, green, orange, purple, yellow. It didn't matter. Everybody was equal. And what that city did for me was it instilled in me the value of hard work. And, and because of the things that I learned going to the public schools in Lowell, from the Green Elk to the Robinson, right? Uh, I thought I could do anything because they always told me I could. And I ended up going from a kid in Lowell, Massachusetts, who had no money, who didn't know anybody who ever owned two cars in their life, to flying around an Air Force One around the world and not just meeting a president, but traveling with him and calling him my friend. I mean, that only happens in this great country and it only happens by saying yes. So my final message is, you know, a lot of people get opportunities in life to do different things. And it's very easy to say, no, no, I can't do it. You come up with an excuse and a reason why. Just take a chance and say yes sometime. Say yes, yeah, I'll try it. And, and maybe, just maybe, you'll find something you love or get an opportunity to know existed. Because saying no is easy. Saying yes is hard. And a lot of us make sacrifices. But, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, I help to change the direction of the country, I hope for the better. Some could argue maybe not, uh, but I did it because I thought it was the right thing to do. And it's all because of, you know, the values I learned growing up in Lowell with a, a union printer as my grandfather for 40 years at Sullivan Printing. So, you know, um, it's just, it's, it's, it's still the most gracious, amazing country that the world has ever known. And it's a place that you don't have to be born into, to be a king, to, to be successful in this country. So I'm yeah. grateful. I love I love your story and you and I have been friends for over 20 years and I remember when you and I were working at the Smith campaign and we were both really young but you're a lot younger than I am um but I just like, <laughs> like all these years and everything that you have accomplished I'm I'm really proud of you and I'm really proud to be your friend and I know you're going to continue to do really really amazing things and and I think it's fantastic and I think you're great well, thank you both for having me. I really appreciate this opportunity. Okay, we really do too. We really do. I told all my friends. I was talking to Corey Lewandowski. They're like, "Oh my god, that's so cool!" So, thank I, you. Um, thank you. I need. I need like. I want. I want stories. We need to talk a lot of stories. But yeah. this is sure. You're you're coming back. You're coming back. Thank you so much, Corey Lewandowski. Bye. Okay, thank you. Have a Take great care. day. Okay. Bye. That was such a fascinating discussion. Oh my God. That was so great. Isn't he great? He he's incredibly informed. He was surprisingly frank at points. There were points where I thought, you know, he's he was being diplomatic and maybe phrasing things perfectly. Other times he was just really I mean, the stuff he said about the vice presidential selection process and all that was like that was stunning. And that Chris Christie was was asked to be chief of staff. That's incredible. And Kushner killed it. I don't know if he said he was asked to be the chief of staff, but I think it was being considered for sure. Um, but yeah, I couldn't remember. So I, he said, I, my notes say he was offered chief of staff, but Kushner objected. I don't, it, it, That could be. I don't know. Um, but I couldn't remember because I remember them being good friends at some point in time. And then just recently just seeing some press clips about 
he some really nasty stuff that he was saying about Trump. And I was just sort yeah. of like, what happened? When did this turn? I and it, it's been it, there has definitely been a shift, and I think Christie's been saying. Um, I think Sununa has been as well. But if I'm if I'm mistaken, can a listener please let me know? But I think both of them have been saying um, that you know that, that they don't think Trump should be the nominee. I think I think one of them even said he won't be the nominee. I don't I don't see how he's not the nominee, but we'll see. I don't I don't see it either way but like Corey is just so wholly informed and always up to date and I know he's taken a lot of flack in the press over the years and at the end of the day I people who give him a hard time I don't think they realize how intelligent he is like he is so intelligent He's clearly a smart guy. I mean, and I, one of the things that I wanted to ask him and didn't get to was I wanted, because he does have a public image, you know, he does have this tough kid, tough guy image. What is it that he wants people to know about him? You're shaking your head like, cause like you, you think he's oh, not a tough guy. No, no, no. Like, no, I agree. And it's like, right. That's the, that's the image that's out there for sure. Yeah. But, but that was a real conversation we just had. I mean, and that's, you know, back to what we were saying earlier, that's what nonviolent political communication is all about. It's not, I mean, at one point I did say, okay, we have to stop talking about this because we're never going to agree, um, which is fair. And he accepted that. He didn't push me. He's like, okay, we'll stop talking about this now. Yeah. Yeah. And I literally, um, as you know, I had 12 questions I wanted to ask him about. Did I hog the guest? Oh, it's just that like he started in right away. We kind of just started guarding getting into like, and I I wanted to revisit the past because I wanted to hear the stories about like how did you get approached to even work at the Trump campaign and and how did that go and what happened when you first met him and what did you think and what did you think about the early of the campaign and I wanted to hear about that too. Yeah, to be but we did. We just kind of launched and all of a sudden we're like you know, talking about all this stuff. I never asked, I also wanted to ask about LGBTQ rights because that's a really important cause. And certainly DeSantis is horrible in LGBTQ rights. And Trump at one, like way back in the beginning of his campaign, he signaled support support for, for I think what he called gay rights, but what we would, what we would call LGBTQ rights. So I just wanted to know if there might be any, any movement on that. But if Corey Lewandowski will come back, I can ask him next time. I'm sure he will. We'll have him back um, at some point in time. And like, let's run through some of the old stuff that we wanted to talk about, as well as the new stuff, because we never even got to the Mueller report and the John Durham report. No, I know. I know. Talk about that, because it was all about the Russia. Well, uh, and I was fascinated when he was talking about, really was fascinated pretty much from the entire interview, but I was taking notes at certain key points. And he was talking about how Trump thrives on chaos, and that's his management style. So he's actually creating the chaos that we see from the outside. And also, when Corey was talking about how when Trump feels that his staffers or or his consultants or whoever they are are in the in the press advocating for him, then you don't hear from him. But he feels if he feels like they're not stepping enough, up enough, then that's when he'll make an appearance in the media. That was really interesting. He's really, I mean, I don't think, I think Trump is a really complex figure. And I told you about when, when we got to meet him back in 2015, the very early days of the campaign, and we were like in a VIP room, they called it, about 20 of us in there. We were all from Hampton, um, sort of like Hampton Republican officials. And um, 
the, you know, Donald Trump, who was not president then, started talking to us. And he was extremely gracious and very cordial and very warm. He was not bombastic or rude or loud. I mean, so I kind of saw at the beginning that there was like two different versions of this guy, because like I said, when we went out into the auditorium, right, he just became his turned it on. Yeah. And make no mistake. I think Trump, I, I think Trump is horrible. I think he was a d- disaster for the for the United States. And I'm going to do everything in my power to stop him from being elected again. You, darn you, Mara, I will stop you. <laughs> <laughs> but but that's why we're having these conversations. I mean, and I and I really appreciated um, when we were talking about the policy differences between Trump and DeSantis. I thought that Corey laid those out, some of them really well. Um, and and what he had to say about Trump's perspective on the military, and uh, so I mean it's it's really helpful to have this stuff crystallized because we do live sort of under a constant state of bombardment, and we there are so many issues going on, so many things being played out all the time. We really need to to focus sometimes and just think, okay, well, this is the difference. This is what they'll do if they'll, ele- if they're elected. That's what I think it's all about. What will the candidate do if they're elected? Right. And there's, I mean, there's a lot of noise and just think of like, I know what my, my average day is, right. I have to get up. I have to go to work. I have an extremely sick husband at home. Um, I have a disabled dog. Uh, you know, I have a lot on my plate. So yeah. I don't always, not always, the vast majority of time, I don't have the time to sit down and say, what's the difference between Ron DeSantis and Governor and President Trump? Like, I don't have the time for it. I, I have small windows of time where I can pay attention to small things. And yeah. I like the average citizen. I mean, maybe you're the single mom who's got two or three or four kids. Maybe you go to school. Maybe you've got two jobs. You know, maybe you're battling through a divorce. I don't know. There's right, every different situation under the sun and people don't or the vast amount of people don't have the luxury of, you know, being able to watch all the news programs and read all the blogs and the newspapers. And, you know, it's, it, it, there's just only so much time for so much stuff. And, and so I do think that Corey's analysis actually was really good because in a short period of time, he was able to give us a lot of information that people can. Yes. And the, and that incredible nugget when I was asking him about abortion, because Trump has signaled, you know, that he thinks six weeks is, is too short and we need to have exceptions. Um, and DeSantis, of course, has not. And Corey's explanation is, well, DeSantis got $30 million from someone who supports the position that DeSantis is holding at this time. And I always thought, well, DeSantis is doing it for political reasons, but I hadn't had confirmation. Well, it's because someone's basically paying him. Someone is paying him to have that position. Yeah. Welcome to big time politics, Mara. Seriously. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm obviously, I'm of course completely pro-choice um, and I'm running a campaign myself on that issue because the person I'm running against is anti-choice and it's a huge difference between us. This is a really important issue for for voters. Well, listen, this was great. Oh my God. It was so great. It was so great. So, so folks come back next time. We're going to have another fascinating guest. Please sign up for us. Subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Apple music, iHeartRadio. 
YouTube. Give us a five-star review if you can so that more people can find our podcast. Follow us on social media. We're on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, just at Going to Spirit. And drop us an email. We'd love to hear from you at Pam and Mara at Gmail. And just remember, sometimes your adversary can turn out to be one of your best friends. Thanks, everyone. See you soon. Everyone. Bye-bye. Hey, Mara, you know that people are constantly complimenting me on my beautiful hair color and my youthful looking skin. I tell them that not only do I work with a really talented master hair colorist and a super experienced esthetician, I use Monate hair care, skin care, and wellness products. Monate products are naturally based, reliant upon natural sources for their key ingredients, unique formulas, and proven benefits. Monate considers it their duty to protect their source, which is the beautiful world in which we live. I love these products so much that I decided to sell them so that others can enjoy their amazing benefits. Check out my store at pamelarogersesq.mymonate.com. That's P-A-M-E-L-A-R-O-G-E-R-S-E-S-Q dot M-Y-M-O-N-A-T dot com. The Monate movement encompasses not only innovative hair care, skin care, and wellness products, but a genuine dedication to helping others build beautiful lives. Each month, I'm going to be giving away an amazing Monate product. So go to our website, which is goingdisparate.com, join our mailing list, and a lucky monthly winner will be selected. Again, you can check out my Monate store at PamelaRogersESQ.MyMonate.com. See you guys soon.